And now it was two weeks later, and a lot had happened. The most important thing was that time had passed, pouring thousands of soothing seconds across the island. People need time to deal with the now before it runs away and becomes the then. And what they need most of all is nothing much happening. And this is me seeing all that horizon, Daphne thought, looking at the wash of blue that stretched all the way to the end of the world. My goodness, father was right. If my horizon was any broader, it would have to be folded in half. It's a funny saying, broaden your horizons. I mean, there's just the horizon, which moves away from you, so you never actually catch up with it. You only get to where it's been. She'd watched the sea all around the world, and it had always looked pretty much the same. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe you moved, you changed. She couldn't believe that back in ancient history she'd given the poor boy scones that tasted like rotting wood and slightly like dead lobster. She'd fussed about napkins. And she'd tried to shoot him in the chest with poor Captain Roberts's ancient pistol. And in any book of etiquette that was a wrong move. But then was that her back there? Or was this her right here? in the sheltered garden that was the women's place, watching the unknown woman sitting by the pool but holding her little son tightly, like a little girl holds a favourite dolly, and wondering if she shouldn't take the child again just to give it some time to breathe. It seemed to Daphne that the men thought all women spoke the same language. That had seemed silly and a bit annoying, but she had to admit that in the place, right now, the language was baby. It was the common language. Probably everyone makes the same sort of cooing noises to babies everywhere in the world, she thought. We kind of understand it's the right thing to do. Probably no one thinks that the thing to do is to lean over it and hit a tin tray with a hammer. And suddenly that was very interesting. Daphne found herself watching the two babies closely in between the chores. When they didn't want feeding, they turned their heads away. But if they were hungry, their little heads bobbed forward. It's like... "'shaking your head for no and nodding it for yes. "'Is this where it comes from? "'Is it the same everywhere? "'How can I find out?' "'She made a note to write this down. "'But she was really worried about the mother of the baby "'whom, in the privacy of her head, "'Daphne called the pig boy. "'The woman was sitting up now and sometimes walked around "'and smiled when you gave her food. "'But there was something missing. "'She didn't play with her baby as much as Carle either. "'She let Carle feed it, because there must have been some lamp still burning in her brain that knew it was the only way, but afterward she'd grab it and scuttle off to the corner of a hut, like a cat with a kitten. Carle was already bustling round the place, always with her baby under her arm, or handed to Daphne if she needed to use both hands. She was a bit puzzled about Daphne, as if she wasn't quite sure what the girl was, but was going to be respectful anyway, just in case. They tended to smile at each other in a slightly wary, we're getting on fine, I hope, kind of way, when their eyes met. But sometimes, when Carle caught Daphne's attention, she made a little motion toward the other woman and tapped her own head, sadly. That didn't need a translation. Every day, one of the men brought some fish up, and Carle showed Daphne some of the plants in the place. They were mostly roots, but there were also some spicy plants, including a pepper that made Daphne go and lie with her mouth in the stream for three minutes although she felt very good afterward. Some of the plants were medicines, as far as she could tell. Carle was good at pantomime. Daphne still wasn't sure whether the little brown nuts on the tree with the red leaves made you sick or stopped you from being sick, but she tried to remember everything anyway. 
She was always superstitious about remembering useful things she had been told, at least outside lessons. You would be bound to need it one day. It was a test the world did to make sure you were paying attention. She tried to pay attention when Carle showed her cookery stuff. The woman seemed to think it was very important, and Daphne tried hard to hide the fact that she had never cooked anything in her life. She had learned how to make some kind of drink, too, that the woman was emphatic about. It smelled like the demon drink, which was the cause of ruin. Daphne knew this because of what happened when Biggleswick the butler broke into her father's study one night and got rascally drunk on whisky and woke up the whole house with his singing. Grandmother had sacked him on the spot and refused to relent even when Daphne's father said that Biggleswick's mother had died that day. The footman pulled him out of the house and carried him to the stables and left him crying in the straw with the horses trying to lick the tears of his face for the salt. What upset Daphne, who had quite liked Biggleswick, especially the way he walked with his feet turned out, so that he looked as if he might slit in two at any moment, was that he lost his job because of her. Grandmother had stood at the top of the stairs like some ancient stone goddess, pointed at Daphne, who had been watching with interest from the upper landing, and screamed at her father, "'Will you stand there doing nothing when your only child is exposed to such lewdness?' And that had been it for the butler. Daphne had been sorry to see him go, because he was quite kind, and she'd very nearly mastered his waddle. Later she'd heard via the dumb-waiter that he'd met a bad end, and all because of the demon drink. On the other hand, she'd always wondered what the demon drink was like, having heard her grandmother talk about it so much. This particular demon drink was made very methodically out of a red root that grew in one corner of the place. Carle peeled it very carefully with a knife, and then washed her hands just as carefully in the pool at the place where it overflowed into the little stream again. The root was mashed with a stone, and a handful of small leaves was added. Carle stared at the bowl for a moment, and then cautiously added another leaf. Water was poured in from a gourd, taking care not to splash, and the bowl was left on a shelf for a day. By next morning the bowl was full of a churning, hissing, evil-looking yellow foam. Daphne went to climb up to see if it smelled as bad as it looked, and Carle gently but firmly pulled her back, shaking her head vigorously. "'Don't drink!' Daphne had asked. "'No drink!' Carle took the bowl down and set it down in the middle of the hut. Then she spat in the bowl. A plume of what looked like steam went up to the thatched roof of the hut, and the churning mixture in the bowl hissed even more. This, thought Daphne, watching in a kind of fascinated shock, is not at all like Grandmother's sherry afternoons. At that point Carle began to sing. It was a jolly little song, with the kind of tune that sticks in your mind even when you don't know the words. It bounced along, and you just knew you wouldn't be able to get it out of your head, even with a chisel. She was singing to the beer, and the beer was listening. It was calming down, like an excited dog being reassured by its master's voice. The hissing began to grow less, the bubbles settled, and what had looked like a foul mess was actually becoming transparent. Still Carle sang, beating time with both hands, but they weren't just beating time, they made shapes in the air, following the music. The beer-calling song had lots of little verses with the same chorus between each one, so Daphne started to sing along and wave her hands in time. She got the feeling that the woman was pleased about this, because she leaned over, still singing, and moved Daphne's fingers into the right positions. Strange, oily ripples passed across the stuff in the bowl, which got a bit clearer with each verse. Carle watched it closely, still singing, and then stopped. The bowl was full of liquid diamond. The beer sparkled like the sea. A small wave rolled across it. 
Carley dipped a shell into it and offered it to Daphne with an encouraging nod. Well, refusing would certainly be what Grandmother called a faux pas. There was such a thing as good manners after all. It might cause offence, and that would never do. She tried it. It was like drinking silver, and it made her eyes water. For man, husband, said Carley, grinning, for when too much husband. She lay on her back and made very loud snoring noises. Even the unknown woman smiled. Daphne thought, I'm learning things. I hope I find out soon what they are. The next day she worked it out. In a language made up of a few words and a lot of smiles, nods and gestures, some very embarrassing gestures, which Daphne knew she should be shocked about, except that here on this sunny island there was just no point, she, Carley, was teaching her the things she needed to know so that she would be able to get a husband. She knew she shouldn't laugh, and tried not to, but there was no way to explain to the woman that her way to get a husband was to have a very rich father who was governor of a lot of islands. Besides, she was not at all certain that she even wanted a husband, since they seemed a lot of work, and as for children, after seeing the birth of Guiding Star, she was certain that if she ever wanted children, she'd buy some ready-made. But this wasn't something she could tell two new mothers, even if she knew how. So she tried to understand what Carley was trying to tell her, and she even let the nameless woman do her hair, which gave the poor woman some comfort, and, Daphne thought, looked pretty good, but far too grown up for thirteen. Her grandmother would not approve, in italics, although seeing to the other side of the world was probably too much, even for her beady eyes. At any moment her father's ship would come into view, of course, that was a certainty. It was taking some time, because there were so many islands to search. And supposing he didn't come? She pushed that thought out of her mind. It pushed back. She could see thoughts that were waiting on the other side of it, waiting to drag her down if she dared to think them. More people had arrived on the day after Guiding Star had been born, a small boy called Otto E, and a tiny wizened old lady, both of them parched and hungry. The old lady was about the same size as the boy, and had taken over a corner of one of the huts, where she ate everything that was given to her, and watched Daphne with small, bright eyes. Carley and the other women treated her with great respect, and called her by a long name that Daphne couldn't pronounce. She called her Mrs. Gurgle, because she had the noisiest stomach Daphne had ever heard, and it was a good idea to keep upwind of her at all times. Otto E., on the other hand, had recovered in the speedy way that children do, and she had sent him off to help Ataba. From here she could see the old man and the boy working on the pig fence just below her, and if she walked to the edge of the fields she could see a steadily growing pile of planks, spars and sailcloth on the beach. Since there was going to be a future, it would need a roof over its head. The Judy was dying. It was sad, but they were only finishing what the wave had begun. It would take a long time, because a boat is quite hard to take to bits, even when you found the carpenter's toolbox. But what a treasure it was on an island that, before the wave, owned two knives and four small three-legged cauldrons. Together, Mao and the brothers pecked away at the boat like grandfather birds at a carcass, dragging everything to the shore and then all the way along the beach. It was hot work. Pilu swanked a bit about knowing the names of the tools in the box, 
but it seemed to Mao that when you got right down to it, a hammer was a hammer, whether it was made of metal or stone. It was the same with chisels. And skate-skin was as good as this sandpaper, wasn't it? All right, but what about pliers? said Pilu, holding up a pair. We've never had pliers. We could have, said Mao, if we'd wanted to, if we'd needed them. Yes, but that's the interesting thing. You don't know you need them until you haven't got them. We've never had them to want to need, said Mao. You don't have to get angry. I'm not angry, snapped Mao. I just think we manage all right. Well, they did. The island always had. But the little galley of the sweet Judy was annoying him in ways he didn't quite understand, which was making him feel even worse. How did the trouser men get to have all this stuff? They'd piled it up where the low forest met the beach, and it was heavy. Pots, pans, knives, spoons, forks. There was a big fork that, with the simple addition of a shaft, would make the finest fishing spear ever, and there were lots like it, and knives as big as swords. It was all so arrogant. The wonderful tools had been treated by the crew as if they were worth hardly anything, thrown in together to rattle around and get scratched. On the island, a fork like that would have been hung on a hut wall and cleaned every day. There was probably more metal on this one boat than there was in all the islands, and according to Milo, there had been lots of boats in Port Mercia, and some of them had been much bigger than the Judy. Mao knew how to make a spear, from picking a shaft to chipping a good sharp point, and when he'd finished, it was truly his, every part of it. The metal spear would be a lot better, but it would just be a, a thing. If it broke, he wouldn't know how to make another one. It was the same with the pans. How were they made? Not even Pilu knew. So we're not much better than the red crabs, Mao thought, as they dragged a heavy box down to the beach. The figs fall out of the trees, and that's all they know. Can't we be better than them? I want to learn trouser man, he said, as they sat down to rest before going back inside the stifling, smelly heat of the wreck yet again. Can you teach me? What do you want to say? said Pilu and then he grinned. You want to be able to talk to the ghost girl, right? Yes, since you ask. We talk like babies. We have to draw pictures. Well, if you want to talk to her about loading and unloading and pulling ropes, I might be able to help, said Pilu. Look, we were on a boat with a lot of other men. Mostly they grumbled about the food. I don't think you want to say, this meat tastes like you cut it off a dog's ass, do you? I know that one. No, but it would be nice to be able to talk to her without asking you for words all the time. Kale is saying the ghost girl is learning to speak our language very well, Milo rumbled, and she makes better beer than anyone. I know, but I want to talk to her like a trouser man, Pilu grinned. You and her all by yourselves, eh? What? Well, she's a girl and you're a... Look, I'm not interested in the ghost girl. I mean, I... Leave it to me. I know just what you need. Pilu rummaged in the heap of things they had already taken from the wreck, and held up what looked to Mao to be just another plank. But, after Pilu had banged at them and hammered at them for a while, turned out to be... Trousers! said Pilu, winking at his brother. Well, said Mao. The trousermen ladies like to see a man in trousers, said Pilu. When we were in Port Mercia, we weren't allowed to go ashore unless we wore some, otherwise the trousermen women would give us funny looks and scream. I'm not going to wear them here. The ghost girl might think you're a trouser man and let you... Milo began. I'm not interested in the ghost girl. Oh, yeah, yeah, you said. Pilu pulled at the trousers for a moment and then stood them on the beach. They were so encrusted with mud and salt that they stayed up by themselves. They looked fearsome. They're powerful magic, they are, Milo said. 
They're the future, sure enough. Mao tried to avoid crunching the red crabs when they went back along the track to the wreck. They probably didn't know if they were alive or dead, he thought. I'm certain they don't believe in little sideways crab gods, and here they are, after the wave, as many as ever. And the birds knew it was coming too. We didn't. But we're smart. We make spears and trap fish and tell stories. When Emo made us out of clay, why didn't he add the bit that tells us that the wave would come? Back in the sweet Judy, Pilu whistled cheerfully as he levered up planks with a long metal bar from the toolbox. It was a jaunty tune, and unlike anything Mao had heard before. They used to whistle the dogs when they were hunting, but this sounded complicated. What is that? he said. It's called I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, said Pilu. One of the men on the John D taught it to me. It's a trouserman song. What does it mean? It means I've got a lot of coconuts, and I want you to throw things at them, said Pilu, as a piece of the deck began to come free. But you don't have to throw things at them if you've already got them down from the tree, Mao pointed out, leaning on the toolbox. I know. The trousermen take coconuts back to their own country and stand them on sticks and throw things at them. Why? For fun, I think. It's called a coconut shy. The plank came up with a long drawn-out scream of nails. It was a horrible noise. Mao felt that he was killing something. All canoes had a soul. Shy? What does that mean? he said. It was better to talk about nonsense than about the death of the Judy. It means coconuts want to hide from people, Milo volunteered. But he looked a bit uncertain at this. Hide? But they're in the trees. We can see them. Why do you ask so many questions, Mao? Because I want so many answers. What does shy really mean? Pilu looked serious, as he always did when he had to think. Generally, he preferred talking. Shy? Well, the crew said to me, You're not shy like your brother. That was because Milo never said anything much to them. He just wanted to earn a three-legged cauldron and some knives so he could get married. Are you telling me that trousermen throw things at coconuts because coconuts don't talk? Could be. They do crazy things, said Pilu. The thing about the trousermen is they are very brave and they sail their boats from the other end of the world and they have the secret of iron. But there is one thing that they are frightened of. Guess what it is? I don't know. Sea monsters? Mao wondered. No. Getting lost? Pirates? No. Then I give up. What are they afraid of? Legs. They're scared of legs, said Pilu triumphantly. They are scared of legs? Whose legs? Their own legs? Do they try to run away from them? How? What with? Not their own legs. But trousermen women get very upset if they see a man's leg and one of the boys on the John D. said a young trouserman fainted when he saw a woman's ankle. The boy said that trousermen women even put trousers on table legs in case young men see them and think of ladies' legs. What's a table? Why does it have legs? That is, said Pilu, pointing toward the other end of the big cabin. It's for making the ground higher. Mao had noticed it before but paid it no attention. It was nothing more than a few short planks held off the deck by some bits of wood. It sloped, because the wreck of the sweet Judy lay on her side, and the table was nailed to it. There were twelve pieces of dull metal nailed to the wood. These turned out to be called plates. What are they for? Which were nailed down so they didn't slip off in stormy weather, and could be washed up by someone sloshing a bucket of water. What's a bucket? Over them. The deep marks in the plates were because mostly the food was two-year-old salt-pickled beef or pork, which was very hard to cut, 
even with a steel knife, but Pilu had loved it because you could chew it all day. The sweet Judy had big barrels of pork and beef. They were feeding the whole island. Mao liked the beef best. According to Pilu, it came from an animal called a cattle. Mao rapped on the tabletop. This table doesn't wear trousers, he said. I asked about that, said Pilu, and they said there was nothing in the world that would stop a sailor thinking about ladies' legs, so it would be a waste of trousers. A strange people, said Mao. But there's something about the trouser men, Pilu went on. Just when you think they're mad, you see something like Port Mercia. Great big huts made of stone, higher than a tree. Some of them are like a forest inside, more boats than you can count, and the horses. Oh, everyone should see the horses. What are horses? Well, they're... Well, you know hogs, said Pilu, ramming the bar under another plank. Better than you can imagine. Oh, yeah, sorry. We heard about that. It was very brave of you. Well, they're not like hogs. But if you took a hog and made it bigger and longer, with a longer nose and a tail, that's a horse. Oh, and much more handsome. And much longer legs. So a horse is not really like a pig at all? Well, yes, I suppose so. But it's got the same number of legs. Do they wear trousers? asked Mao, thoroughly confused. No, just people and tables. You should try them. They made her do it. That was probably a good thing, Daphne admitted. She'd wanted to do it, but hadn't dared do it, but they'd made her do it, although really they'd made her make herself do it. And now that she'd done it, she was glad. Glad, glad, glad. Her grandmother would not have approved, but that was all right, because A, she wouldn't find out, B, what Daphne had done was entirely sensible in the circumstances, and C, her grandmother really wouldn't find out. She had removed her dress and all but one of her petticoats. She was only three garments away from being totally naked. Well, four, if you included the grass skirt. The unknown woman had made it for her, much to Carle's approval. She'd used a lot of the strange vine that grew everywhere here. It seemed to be a sort of grass, but instead of growing upward, it just unrolled itself like an endless green tongue. It tangled up with other plants, blew up into the trees, and generally just got everywhere. According to quite a good pantomime from Carle, you could make a so-so soup of it, or wash your hair in its juice, but mostly you used it as string or made clothes and bags out of it, like this skirt the unknown woman had made. Daphne knew she had to wear it, because it was quite something for the poor woman to let go of her baby for any reason other than to let Carle feed it, and that was a good thing and ought to be encouraged. The skirt rustled when she walked, in a most disconcerting way. She thought she sounded like a restless haystack. The wonderful breeze got in, though. This must be what Grandmother called going native. She thought that being foreign was a crime, or at least some sort of illness that you could catch by being out in the sun too much, or eating olives. Going native was giving in and becoming one of them. The way not to go native was to act exactly as if you were at home, which included dressing for dinner in heavy clothes and eating boiled meat and brown soup. Vegetables were unwholesome, and you should also avoid fruit because you don't know where it's been. That had always puzzled Daphne because, after all, how many places could a pineapple go? Besides, wasn't there a saying, when in Rome do as the Romans do? But her grandmother would probably say that meant bathing in blood, throwing people to the lions and eating peacock's eyeballs for tea. And I don't care, Daphne thought. This is rebellion. 
but obviously she wasn't going to take off her bodice or her pantaloons or her stockings. This was no time to go totally mad. You had to maintain standards. And then she realised she had thought that last thought in her grandmother's voice. "'You know, on you they look good,' said Pilu, down in the low forest. "'The ghost girl will say, "'Aha! It's a trouser man, and then you can kiss her.' "'I told you this is not about kissing the ghost girl,' snapped Mao. "'I just want to see if they have any effect on me, that's all.' He took a few steps. The trousers had been swirled around in the river and bashed on a rock a few times to get the stiffness out of them, but they still made creaking noises as he walked. This was foolish, he knew, but if you couldn't put your trust in gods, then trousers might do. After all, in the Song of the Four Brothers, didn't the North Wind have a cloak that carried him through the air? And if you couldn't believe in a song that turned poison into beer, what could you believe in? Do you feel anything? said Pilu. Yes, they really chafe the stresser. Ah, that would be because you're not wearing long johns, Pilu pointed out. Long johns what? It's what they call soft trousers that you wear underneath the outside trousers. I think they are named after a pirate. So even the trousers wear trousers? That's right. They think you can't have too much trouser. Hold on. What are these things called? said Mao, fumbling around in them. I don't know, said Pilu cautiously. What do they do? They're like little bags inside the trousers. Now that's clever. Pockets, said Pilu. But trousers alone weren't something that changed the world. Mao could see that. Trousers would be useful if you were hunting in thorny scrub, and the bags for carrying things were a wonderful idea. But it wasn't the trousers that gave the trousermen their metal and their big ships. No, it was the toolbox. He'd been cool about it in front of Pilu, because he did not like to admit that the nation was behind the trousermen in any way. But the toolbox impressed him. Oh, everyone could invent a hammer, but there were things in that box, beautiful, gleaming wooden and metal things, that not even Pilu knew the use of, and they spoke to Mao somehow. We never thought of pliers because we didn't need them. Before you make something that is truly new, you first have to have a new thought. That's the important thing. We didn't need new things, so we didn't think new thoughts. We need new thoughts now. Let's get back to the others, Mao said. But we'll take the tools this time. He stepped forward and fell over. Ow! There's a huge stone here! Pilu pulled aside the ever-growing paper vine as Mao tried to rub some life back into his foot. Ah, oh, it's one of the Judy's cannon, he announced. What's a cannon? said Mao, peering at the long black cylinder. Pilu told him. The next question was, What's gunpowder? Pilu told him that, too, and Mao saw the little silver picture of the future again. It wasn't clear, but cannon fitted into it. It was hard to believe in gods, but the Judy was a gift from the wave. It held what they needed—food, tools, timber, stone—so perhaps they needed what it held, even if they didn't know it yet, even if they didn't want it yet. But now they should be getting back. They each took a handle of the toolbox, which even by itself was almost too much to carry. They had to stop every few minutes to get their breath back, while Milo trudged on with the planks. In fact, Mao got his breath back while Pilu chatted. He talked all the time about anything. Mao had learned this about the brothers. It wasn't a case of big, stupid Milo and little, clever Pilu. Milo didn't talk as much, that was all. When he did talk, he was worth listening to. But Pilu swam through words like a fish through water. 
He painted pictures in the air with them, and he did it all the time. Eventually, Mao said, Don't you wonder about your people, Pilu, about what happened to them? And for once, Pilu slowed down. We went back. All the huts were gone. So were the canoes. We hope they made it to one of the stone islands. When we have rested, and the baby is fine and strong, we'll go looking for them. I hope the gods took care of them. Do you think they did? asked Mao. The best of the fish were always taken to the shrine, said Pilu in a flat voice. Here they are, I mean, they were, left on the god anchors, said Mao. The pigs ate them. Well, yes, but only what's left. No, the whole fish, said Mao bluntly. But the spirit goes to the gods, said Pilu, his voice seeming to come from a distance, as if he were trying to draw back from the conversation without actually backing away. Have you ever seen it happen? Look, I know you think there are no gods. Perhaps they do exist. I want to know why they act as if they don't. I want them to explain. Look, it happened, all right, said Pilu wretchedly. I'm just grateful I'm alive. Grateful? Who to? Glad, then. Glad that we are all alive and sad that others died. You are angry, and what good is that going to do? said Pilu, and now his voice had a strange kind of growl to it, like some small harmless animal that's been trapped in a corner and is ready to fight back in a fury. To Mao's astonishment, Pilu was crying, without knowing why, but also knowing, absolutely knowing, down to his bones that it was the right thing to do, Mao put his arms around him as enormous shuddering sobs escaped from Pilu, mixed with broken words and tangled in snot and tears. Mao held him until he stopped shaking and the forest was given back to birdsong. They went to be dolphins, Pilu murmured. I'm sure of it. Why can't I do this, Mao thought. Where are my tears when I need them? Maybe the wave took them. Maybe Lokaha drank them, or I left them in the dark water. But I can't feel them. Perhaps you need a soul to cry. After a while the sobbing became coughs and sniffs. Then Pilu very gently pushed Mao's arms away and said, Well, this isn't getting things done, is it? Come on, let's get going. You know, I'm sure you gave me the heavy end to carry. And there was the smile, as if it had never gone away. You didn't have to know Pilu for long to see that he floated through life like a coconut on the ocean. He always bobbed up. There was some sort of natural spring of cheerfulness that bubbled to the surface. Sadness was like a cloud across the sun, soon past. Sorrow was tucked away somewhere in his head, locked up in a cage with a blanket over it, like the captain's parrot. He dealt with troubling thoughts by simply not thinking them. It was as if someone had put a dog's brain in a boy's body, and right now... Mao would have given anything to be him. Just before the wave came, all the birds flew up into the air, Mao said, as they walked out from under the canopy and into the full light of the afternoon. It was as if they knew something, something that I didn't. Well, birds fly up when hunters go into the forest, said Pilu. It's what they do. Yes, but this was nearly a minute before the wave came. The birds knew. How did they know? Who knows? And that was the other thing about Pilu. No thought stayed in his head for very long, because it got lonely. The ghost girl has got a, a thing called a book, you know, made out of something like paper vine, and it's full of birds. He wasn't sure what he was trying to do now. Perhaps he just wanted to see the light of interest in Pilu's eyes. Squashed? No, like tattoos, but the proper colours. And the trouser man name for Grandfather Bird... Is pantaloon bird. What's a pantaloon? 
Trouser Man Trousers for Trouser Women, Mao explained. Silly to have a different name, said Pilu. And that was it. Pilu had a soul to fill him, so he lived happily enough. But Mao looked into himself and found questions, and the only answers seemed to be because, and because was no answer at all. Because the gods, the stars, the world, the wave, life, death. There are no reasons, there is no sense, only because. Because was a curse, a struck blow. It was putting your hand in the cold hand of Lokaha. What will you do, hermit crab? Will you pull down the stars? Will you smash the mountains like shy coconuts to find their secrets? Things are as they are. Existence is its own because. All things in their right place. Who are you to demand reasons? Who are you? The grandfathers had never been as loud as this before. Their thundering made his teeth ache, and he collapsed to his knees, the box of tools crashing into the sand. "'Are you all right?' asked Pilo. "'Oh,' said Mao, and spat bile. It wasn't just that the old men got into his head, although that was bad enough, but they left everything in a mess when they went away again. He stared at the sand until the bits of his thoughts came back together again. "'The grandfathers spoke to me,' he mumbled. "'I didn't hear anything.' "'Then you're lucky. Oh!' Mao clutched at his head. It had been really bad this time, the worst ever. And there was something extra, too. It had sounded as though there had been more voices, very weak or a long way off, and they had been shouting something different. But it had got lost in the clamour. More of them, he thought gloomily. A thousand years of grandfathers all shouting at me, and never shouting anything new. They want me to bring up the last of the god-anchors, he said. Do you know where it is? Yes, it's in the lagoon, and it can stay there. All right, but what actual harm would it do to bring it up? Harm, said Mao, trying to understand this. You want to thank the god of water? You don't have to mean it, and people will feel better, said Pilu. Something whispered in Mao's ear, but whatever it was trying to say was far too faint to be understood. It's probably some ancient grandfather who was a bit slow, he thought sourly. And even though I am the chief... My job is to make people feel better, is it? Either the gods are powerful, but didn't save my people, or they don't exist, and all we're believing in is lights in the sky and pictures in our heads. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that important? The voice in his head answered, or tried to. It was like watching someone shouting at the other end of the beach. You could see them jumping up and down and waving their arms, and maybe even make out their lips moving. But the wind is blowing through the palms and rustling the pandanooses, and the surf is pounding, and the grandfather birds are throwing up unusually loudly, so you can't hear, but you do know what you can't hear is definitely shouting. In his head it was exactly like that, but without the beach, the jumping, the waving, the lips, the palms, the pandanooses, the surf, and the birds, but with the same feeling that you are missing something that someone really, really wants you to hear. Well, he wasn't going to listen to their rules. I'm the little blue hermit crab, said Mao under his breath and I am running, but I will not be trapped in a shell again, because, yes, there has to be a because, because any shell will be too small. I want to know why. Why everything. I don't know the answers, but a few days ago I didn't know there were questions. Pilu was watching him carefully, as if uncertain whether he should run or not. Let's go and see if your brother can cook, shall we? said Mao, keeping his voice level and friendly. He can't usually, said Pilu. He broke into his grin again. There was something nervous about it. 
He's frightened of me, Mao thought. I haven't hit him or even raised my hand. I've just tried to make him think differently, and now he's scared. Of thinking. It's magic. It can't be magic, Daphne thought. Magic is just a way of saying, I don't know. There were quite a few shells of beer fizzing on the shelves in the shed. They all had little bubbles growing and bursting from the seals at the top. It was beer that hadn't been sung to yet. Mother of beer, they called it at that stage. She could tell quite easily, because there were dead flies all around it. They didn't drown in it. They died and became little fly statues as soon as they drank it. If you were looking for the real demon drink, this was it. You spit in it, you sing it a song, you wave your hands over it in time to said song, the demon is magically sent back to, um, wherever, and there's just the good drink left. How does that happen? Well, she had a theory. She'd spent half the night thinking it up. The ladies were at the other end of the place picking blossoms. They probably wouldn't hear her if she sang quietly. The spitting, well, that was for luck, obviously. Besides, you had to be scientific about these things and test one bit at a time. The secret was in the hand movements. She was sure of it. Well, slightly sure. She poured a little of the deadly pre-beer into a bowl and stared at it. Or perhaps it was in the song, but not in the words. Perhaps the frequency of the human voice did something to the tiny atomic substances, such as happened when the famous operatic soprano Dame Ariadne Stretch broke a glass by singing at it. That sounded very promising, especially when you knew that only women were supposed to make beer, and they, of course, had higher voices. The demon drink stared back at her, rather smugly in her view. Go on, it seemed to say. Impress me. I'm not sure I knew all the words to this one, she said, and realised that she had just apologised to a drink. That was the trouble with being brought up in a polite household. She cleared her throat. Once my father took me to the music hall, she said. You might enjoy this one. She cleared her throat again and began, Let's all go down the strand, have a banana, oh, what a happy land. I'll be the leader, you can march behind. No, that sounded a bit complicated for a beverage, and a banana only confused matters. What about... She hesitated and thought about songs. Could it be that simple? She started to sing again, counting on her fingers as she sang. Baba, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. She sang sixteen verses, counting all the time, singing to the beer as it bubbled, and noted when it was suddenly as clear and sparkly as a diamond. Then she tested her conclusion, like a proper scientist would, on another bowl of mother of beer, feeling rather certain and more than a little pleased with herself. Now she had a working hypothesis. Ba, ba, black! She stopped, aware of people trying to be quiet. Carle and the unknown woman were standing in the doorway, listening with interest. Men, said Carle cheerfully. She had a flower tucked in her hair. Eh, uh, what? said Daphne, flustered. I want to go see my husband. Daphne understood that, and there was no rule against it. Men weren't allowed into the place, but women could come and go as they pleased. Ah, uh, good, she said. She felt something touch her hair, went to brush it away, and realised that the unknown woman was undoing her plaits. She went to stop her, and caught Carle's warning look. In her head, the unknown woman was coming back from somewhere bad, and every sign of her being a normal person again was to be encouraged. She felt the plaits being gently teased apart. Then she smelled a whiff of perfume, and realised the woman had stuck a flower behind her ear. 
They grew everywhere in the place, huge, floppy, pink and purple blooms that knocked you down with their scent. Carle generally wound one into her hair in the evenings. Er, uh, thank you, she said. Carle took her gently by the arm, and Daphne felt the panic rise. She was going to the beach as well, but she was practically naked. She had nothing under the grass skirt but one petticoat, her pantaloons, and a pair of unmentionables, and her feet were bare right up to the ankles. Then it went strange, and forever afterward she never quite understood how it had happened. She should go down to the beach. The decision floated there in her head clear and definite. She had decided it was time to go down to the beach. It was just that she couldn't remember deciding. It was a strange sensation, like feeling full even though you can't recall having had lunch. And there was something else, fading away fast like an echo without a voice. Everyone has toes. Milo was a pretty good cook, Mao had to admit. He really knew how to bake fish. The smell hung over the camp when they got back, and the air practically drooled. There was still plenty of the sweet Judy left. It would take months, maybe years, to break her down. They had the tools now, yes, but not enough people. It would need a dozen strong men to shift some of the bigger timbers. But there was a hut, even if its canvas sides rattled in the wind, and there was fire, and now there was a hearth. And what a hearth! The entire galley had been dragged here, every precious metal bit of it, except for the big black oven itself. That could wait, because there was already a fortune in pots and pan and knives. And we didn't make them, Mao thought, as the tools were passed around. We can build good canoes, but we could never build the sweet Judy. What are you doing? he said to Milo. The man had taken up a hammer and a metal chisel, and was bashing away at a smaller chest among the pile of salvage. It is locked, said Milo and showed him what a lock was. "'There's something important inside, then?' Mao asked. "'More metal?' "'Maybe gold,' said Pilo. That had to be explained, and Mao remembered the shiny yellow metal around the strange invitation the ghost girl had given him. "'Trousermen loved it almost as much as trousers,' said Pilo, even though it was too soft to be useful. One small piece of gold was worth more than a really good machete, which showed how crazy they were. But when the hasp broke, and the lid was thrown back. The chest was found to contain the smell of stale water and... Books, said Mao. Charts, said Pilu. That's like a map, but, well, looks like this. He held up a handful of the charts, which squelched. What good are they? said Ataba, laughing. A soggy chart was laid out on the sand. They inspected it, but Mao shook his head. You probably had to be a trouser man to begin to understand. What did it all mean? It was just lines and shapes. What good were they? They are pictures of what the ocean would look like if you were a bird high in the sky, said Pilu. Can trousermen fly, then? They have tools to help them, said Pilu uncertainly. Then he brightened and added, like this. Mao watched as Pilu pulled a heavy round item from his pile of spoils. It's called a compass. With a compass and a chart, they are never lost. Don't they taste the water? Don't they watch the currents? Don't they smell the wind? Don't they know the ocean? Oh, they are good seamen, said Pilu, but they travel to unknown seas. The compass tells them where home is. Mao turned it around in his hand, watching the needle swing. And where it isn't, he said. It has a point at both ends. It shows them where unknown places are, too. Where are we on their chart? He pointed to a large area of what was apparently land. "'No, that's nearer Australia,' said Pilu. 
That's a big place. We are, he rummaged through the damp charts and pointed to some marks. Here. Probably. So where are we, then, said Mao, straining to see. It's just a lot of lines and squiggles. Um, those squiggles are called numbers, said Pilu nervously. They tell the captains how deep the sea is, and these are called letters. They say Mothering Sundays. That's what they call us. We got told that on the John D, said Milo helpfully. And I'm reading it here on the chart, said his brother, giving him a sharp look. Why are we called that? Mao asked. We are the Sunrise Islands. Not in their language. Trousermen often get names wrong. And the island, how big is the nation? said Mao, still staring at the chart. I can't see it. Pilu looked away and mumbled something. What did you say? said Mao. It's not actually drawn here. It's too small. Small? What do you mean, small? He's right, Mao, said Milo solemnly. We didn't want to tell you. It's small. It's a small island. Mao's mouth was open in astonished disbelief. That can't be right, he protested. It's much bigger than any of the windcatcher islands. Islands that are even smaller, said Pilu. And there's lots of them. Thousands, said Milo. It's just that, well, as big islands go... This is one of the smaller ones, Pilu finished. But the best one, said Mao quickly. And no one else has got the tree-climbing octopus. Absolutely, said Pilu. Just so long as we remember that. This is our home, said Mao, standing up. He pulled at the trousers. Ah, these really itch. All I can say is trousermen don't walk about much. A sound made him look up, and there was the ghost girl. At least, it looked like the ghost girl. Behind her stood Carle with a big grin, and the unknown woman smiling her faint faraway smile. Mao looked down at his trousers, and then up at her long hair with the flower in it, while she looked down at her toes, and then up at his trousers, which were so much longer than his legs that he appeared to be standing in a pair of concertinas, and the captain's hat floated on his curls like a ship at sea. She turned to look at Carle, who stared up at the sky. He looked at Pilu, who looked down at his feet, although his shoulders were shaking. Then Mao and the ghost girl looked directly into each other's eyes, and there was only one thing they could do, which was to laugh themselves silly. The others joined in. Even the parrot squawked, Show us your drawers! and did its doodars on Ataba's head. But Milo, who took things sensibly, and who happened to be facing the sea, stood up and pointed and said, Sails! Chapter 7 Diving for Gods It rained gently, filling the night with a rustling. Three more canoes, Mao thought, staring into the dark. Three all at once, sailing on the gentle wind. Now there were two babies, and another coming soon, one little girl, one boy, eleven women, including the ghost girl, and eight men, not including Mao, who had no soul, and three dogs. He'd missed dogs. Dogs added something that even people didn't, and one of the dogs was sitting by his feet, here in the darkness and the gentle rain. It wasn't bothered much about the rain, or what might be out there on the unseen sea, but Mao was a warm body moving about in a sleeping world, and might at any moment do something that called for running around and barking. Occasionally it looked up at him adoringly, and made a slobbery, gulping noise which possibly meant anything you say, boss. 
More than twenty people, Mao thought, as the rain dripped off his chin like tears. It wasn't enough if the raiders came. Not enough to fight, but too many to hide. And certainly enough for a few good dinners for the people-eaters. No one had seen the raiders. They were coming from island to island, people said, but it was always a rumour. On the other hand, if you had seen the raiders, then they had seen you. There was a slight greyness to the air now, not really light, but the ghost of it. It would get stronger, and the sun would come up, and maybe the horizon would be black with canoes, and maybe it wouldn't. Inside Mao's head there was one bright memory. There was the ghost girl, looking silly in the grass skirt, and there was him, looking even sillier in the trousers, and everyone was laughing, even the unknown woman, and everything had been... right. And then there had been all these new people, milling around and worried and ill and hungry. Some of them were not even sure where they'd ended up, and all of them were scared. They were a rabble, according to the grandfathers. They were the people the wave had not swallowed. Why? Not even they knew. Maybe they had held on to a tree while others had been swept away, or had been on higher ground, or at sea like Mao. Those afloat had gone back to people and villages that weren't there, and had scavenged what they could, and set out to find other people. They'd followed the current, and had met up, and had become a kind of floating village. But one of the children without parents, parents without children, wives without husbands, people without all those things around them that told them what they were. The wave had shaken up the world and left broken pieces. There might be hundreds more out there. And then... And then... From where had they come, the rumours of the raiders? A shout from other refugees, fleeing too urgently to stop? An old woman's dream? A corpse floating by? Did it matter when terrified people had set out again in anything that would still float, with little to eat and brackish water? And so the second wave came, drowning people in their own fear. And at last they had seen the smoke. Nearly all of them knew the nation. It was rock. It couldn't be washed away. It had the finest god anchors in the world. And what they had found was ragtag, not much better off than themselves, with one old priest, a strange ghost girl, and a chief who was not a boy and not a man, and didn't have a soul and might be a demon. Thank you, Ataba, Mao thought. When people are not sure what you are, they don't know what you might do. The newcomers seemed awkward about a chief who wasn't a man, but a touch of demon got respect. He'd dreamed about the island being full of people again, but in his dream it was the people who used to be there. These people didn't belong. They didn't know the chants of the island. They didn't have the island in their bones. They were lost, and they wanted their gods. They had been talking about it yesterday. Someone asked Mao if he was sure that the water anchor had been in its right place before the wave. He'd had to think hard about that, keeping his expression blank. He must have seen the god anchors nearly every day of his life. Were all three there when he went to the boy's island? Surely he'd have noticed if one was missing. The empty space would have cried out to him. Yes, he'd said, they were all there. And then a grey-faced woman had said, But a man could lift one, yes? And he saw how it was going. If someone had moved the stone and rolled it into the water, couldn't that have caused the wave? That would explain it, wouldn't it? That would be the reason, wouldn't it? He'd looked at all the haggard faces, all of them willing him to say yes. Say yes, Mao, and betray your father and your uncles and your nation, just so that people would have a reason. 
The grandfathers had thundered their anger in his head until he thought his ears would bleed. Who were these beggars from little sandy islands to come here and insult them? They urged his blood to sing war chants in his veins, and Mao had to lean on his spear to stop himself from raising it. But his eye had stayed on the grey woman. He couldn't remember her name. She'd lost her children and her husband he knew. She was walking in the steps of Lokaha. He saw it in her eyes and kept his temper. The gods let you down. When you needed them, they weren't there. That is it and all of it. To worship them now would be to kneel before bullies and murderers. Those were the words he'd wanted to say. But with her looking at him, he'd rather bite his tongue off than say them. They would be true, he knew it. Yet here and now that didn't mean anything. He'd looked around at the anxious faces, still waiting for his answer, and remembered how shocked and hurt Pilu had been. A thought could be like a spear. You do not throw a spear at the widow, the orphan, the grieving. Tomorrow, he told them, I will bring up the anchor of water. And people sat back and looked at one another in satisfaction. It wasn't smugness. It wasn't a look of triumph. But the world had wobbled a bit and was now back where it should be. And now it was tomorrow, somewhere beyond the hissing rain. I'll bring the three stones together, he thought. And what will happen next? Nothing. The world has changed, but they'll catch fish to put on the stones and cower. Light was leaking slowly through the rain, and something made him turn. There was a figure standing a handful of paces away. It had a large head that looked, as he concentrated, as if it were more like some enormous beak, and the rain made a slightly different noise as it landed, more a click than a patter. There were stories about demons. They came in all shapes. They could come disguised as a human, or an animal, or anything in between, but there were no demons. There couldn't be. If there were no gods, then there were no demons. So what was standing there in the rain was not a creature with a beak bigger than a man's head that looked quite capable of slicing Mao in two. It couldn't exist, and he had to prove it. Somehow, though, rushing up and shouting at it didn't seem the sensible next thing to do. I've got a brain, haven't I, he thought. I will prove it's not a monster. There was a small gust of wind, and the creature flapped a wing. Oh, but remember the toolbox. There was nothing special about the trousermen. They'd just been lucky. Pilu said they came from a place where, sometimes, the weather could get so cold the sky shed freezing feathers, like the hail you sometimes got in storms, but more fluffy. And so they had to invent trousers to stop their wingos getting frozen, and big boats to find places where the water never got hard. They had to learn new ways of thinking, a new toolbox. This isn't a demon. Let's find out what it is. He stared. The feet looked human. And what he thought was that thing flapping didn't really look like a wing. When you watched carefully, it was more like cloth blowing in the breeze. The only demon was in his fear. The thing made a cooing noise. This was so undemonic that Mao splashed over to it and saw someone who draped themselves in a tarpaulin from the sweet Judy that was so stiff that it had formed a sort of hood. It was the unknown woman, cuddling her baby in the dry while the rain trickled around them. She gave him her haunted little smile. How long had she been there? Before the light began to rise, he was certain. What was she doing there? Well, why was he there if it came to that? It just felt right. Someone had to watch over the nation. Perhaps she thought the same thing. The rain was slackening off now, and he could see the surf. 
any minute now, the show us your drawers, Roberts is on the gin again, Parrot would be waking up. Pilou said that cry meant, show me your small trousers. Perhaps it was the way trouser men recognised one another. He had small trousers now. He'd cut the legs off at the knee and used the material to make more of what made trousers really worthwhile, which were pockets. You could keep so many things in them. The unknown woman had walked back up the beach, and there were the sounds of people waking up. Do it now. Give them their gods. He slipped out of the half-trousers with their so-useful pockets, ran forward and dived into the lagoon. The tide was just about to turn, but the water around the break was calm. The wave had really pounded through here. He could see deep blue water beyond the gap. The anchor of water gleamed below him, right in the gap. It was deeper than the others had been, and farther from the shore. It would take ages to bring it back. Better start now, then. He dived, got his arms around the stone cube, and heaved. It didn't budge. Mao brushed aside some weeds. The white block was trapped by a piece of coral. Mao tried to move that, too. About five seconds later, his head broke water, and he swam back, slowly and thoughtfully, to the shore. He found Ataba using a metal hammer from the toolbox on a slab of salt-pickled beef. The stuff went down well with nearly everyone except the priest, who didn't have enough teeth and couldn't often find anyone prepared to do the chewing for him. He sat down and watched the old man in silence. "'You've come to laugh at me in my infirmity, demon boy,' said Ataba, looking up at him. "'No. Then you might at least have the decency to take over the hammering.' Mao did so. It was hard work. The blows just bounced off it. You could make a shield out of the stuff. "'Something on your mind, demon boy?' said the priest after a while. "'You haven't insulted the gods for at least ten minutes.' "'I need some advice, elderly one,' said Mao. "'It's about the gods, actually.' "'Yes. But do you believe in them today? I watched you yesterday night. You learned that belief is a complicated matter, yes?' "'There are three gods, yes?' "'Correct.' "'Not four, ever.' "'Some say... Emo is the fourth god, but he is the all in which they, and we, and even you, exist. Emo has no god anchors. Emo is, and since he is, he is everywhere. Since he is everywhere, he is not anywhere. The whole universe is his anchor. What about the star Atindi, which is always close to the sun? That is the sun of the moon. Surely you know this. He has no god anchors? No, said Ataba. It is nothing more than the clay that Emo had left over after he made the world. And the red star called Emo's campfire? Ataba gave Mao a suspicious look. Boy, you know that is where Emo baits the mud to make the world. And the gods live in the sky, but also are close to their anchors. Don't be smart with me. You know this one. The gods are everywhere, but can have a greater presence in certain places. What is this about? Are you trying to trap me in some way? No, I just want to understand. No other island has white stone god anchors, right? Yes, snapped Ataba. And you are trying to make me say something wrong. He looked around suspiciously, in case of lurking heresy. Have I succeeded? No, demon boy. What I have told you is right and true. Mao stopped hammering, but held on to the hammer. I found another god anchor. It's not the one for water, so that means I've found you a new god, old man, and I think he's a trouser man.
In the end, they worked from one of the big canoes. Milo, Mao, and Pilu took turns diving with the hammer and steel chisel from the sweet Judy's toolbox and pounding at the coral that held the white cube in its grip. Mao was hanging on to the canoe to get his breath when Pilu surfaced on the other side. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, Pilu said, glancing up nervously at Ataba's hunched figure in the stern. But there is another one down there, behind the first one. Are you sure? Come and see. It's your turn, anyway. Careful, though. The tide's really tugging now. It was. Mao had to fight against the pull of the water as he swam down. As he did so, Milo dropped the hammer and chisel and swam up past him. It seemed as though they had been doing this for hours. It was hard to hammer under the water. The hammer just didn't seem to work so well. There was the stone Mao had first dived for. It looked free of coral now, but where it had been broken away there was the corner of another cube, in the unmistakable white stone. What did all this mean? Not more gods, he thought. We've had enough trouble with the ones we've got. He ran his fingers over the shape cut in the first of the new stones. It looked like a tool from the trouser man toolbox, one that he'd held in his hand and wondered about, until Pilu had told him what it was for. But there had been no trouser men around, even when his grandfather was a boy. He knew that. And Coral was ancient. One of these cubes had been right inside the rock, even so, like a pearl in an oyster. He would never have found it if the wave hadn't smashed up the reef. He heard the splash above, and a hand reached past him and snatched the hammer. He looked up into the furious features of a taba, just as the old man brought the hammer down on the stone. Bubbles rose as the priestman shouted something. Mao tried to grab the hammer and got a surprisingly powerful kick in the chest. There was nothing for it but to swim for the surface with what breath he had left. What happened? asked Pilu. Mao hung onto the side of the canoe, wheezing. The old fool, why did he do that? Are you all right? What is he doing? Helping at last? asked Pilu, with the cheeriness of someone who doesn't know what's going on yet. Mao shook his head and dived again. The old man was still hammering madly at the stones, and it occurred to Mao that he didn't have to risk getting another kick. All he had to do was wait. Ataba needed air just like everyone else, and how much of it could that skinny chest hold? More than he expected. Ataba was hammering wildly as if he intended to be down there all day, and then there was an explosion of bubbles as the last of his air ran out. That was chilling, and also quite insane. What was so dangerous about a rock that the old fool would waste his last breath trying to smash it? Mao fought his way down through the running tide, grabbed the man's body and dragged it back up to the surface, almost flinging Ataba into the arms of the brothers. The canoe rocked. Drain the water out of him, he yelled. I don't want him to die. I can't scream at him if he's dead. Milo had already turned Ataba upside down and was slapping him on the back. A lot of water came out, chased by a cough. More coughs followed, and he lowered the old man to the deck. He was trying to smash the new stones, said Mao. But they looked like god anchors, said Milo. Yes, said Mao. Well, they did. Whatever you thought about the gods and their stones, these looked like god anchors. Milo pointed to the groaning Ataba. And he's a priest, he said. Milo believed in laying out the facts of the matter. And he was trying to smash the stones? Yes, said Mao. There was no doubt about it. A priest trying to smash god stones. Milo looked at him. I'm puzzled, he said. One of those down there has got calipers carved on it, said Pilu cheerfully. 
The trouser men use calipers to measure distance on their charts. That means nothing, Milo intoned. Gods are older than the trouser men, and they can make what they like on the stones. Hey! Ataba had jumped over the side again. Mao saw his feet disappear under the water. That was the caliper stone he was trying to smash, he growled and dived. The water was pouring through the gap now. It grabbed Mao as he swam after the skinny figure, tried to play with him, tried to throw him against the jagged coral. It had got the priest already. He was struggling down toward the blocks, but the racing tide snatched at him, banged him against the coral and tumbled him away, struggling with a thin trail of blood blooming in the water behind him. Never fight the tide. It was always stronger. Didn't the old fool know that? Mao swam after him, curving his body like a fish, using all his energy to keep away from the edges of the gap. Ahead of him, Ataba struggled to the surface, tried to grab a handhold, and was spun away into the foam. Mao rose to take a breath and swam on. Blood in the water, Mao, said Lokaha, swimming alongside him, and there will be sharks outside the reef. What now, little hermit crab? Does not happen, thought Mao, and tried to swim faster. Demon boy, he calls you. He smiles in your face but tells people you are mad. What is he to you? Mao tried to keep his mind blank. Out of the corner of his eye he could see the grey shadow easily keeping up with him. There's no shell for you here, little hermit crab. You are heading for the open sea. Things happen or do not happen, thought Mao, and he felt the deep water open up under him. The sunlight shone blue through the waves above, but below Mao it was green, shading to black. And there was Ataba, hanging in the light, not moving, blood uncoiled in the water around him, like smoke from a slow fire. A shadow passed over the sun, and a grey shape slid overhead. It was the canoe. As Mao grabbed the priest, there was a splash, and Pilu swam out of a cloud of bubbles. He pointed frantically. Mao turned to see a shark already circling. It was a small grey, although when there is blood in the water, then no shark is small, and this one seemed to fill the whole of Mao's world. He thrust the old man toward Pilu, but kept his attention on the shark, looking into its mad rolling eye as it swam past. He thrashed around a little to keep its attention on him, and didn't relax until, behind him, he could feel the boat rocking as a taba was hauled up for the second time. The shark was going to rush him on the next pass, Mao could tell, and suddenly it didn't matter. This was the world, all of it, just this silent blue ball of soft light, and the shark and Mao without a knife, a little ball of space with no time. He swam gently toward the fish, and this seemed to worry it. His thoughts came slowly and calmly without fear. Pilu and Ataba would be out of the water now, and that was what mattered. When a shark is coming at you, you are already dead, old Nawi had said, and since you were already dead, then anything was worth trying. He rose gently and gulped a lungful of air. When he sank back down again, the shark had turned and was slicing through the water toward him. Wait. Mao trod water gently as the shark came onward, as grey as Lokaha. There would be one chance. More sharks would be here at any second, but a second passed slowly in the arena of light. Here it came. Wait. Then, does not happen, said Mao to himself, and let all his breath out in a shout. The shark turned as if it had hit a rock, 
but Mao did not wait for it to come back. He spun in the water and raced for the canoe as fast as he dared, trying to make the maximum of speed with the minimum of splash. As the brothers hauled him aboard, the shark passed underneath them. You drove it away, said Pilu, heaving him up. You shouted, and it turned and ran. Because old Nawi was right, Mao thought. Sharks don't like noise, which sounds louder underwater. It doesn't matter what you shout, so long as you shout it loud. It probably wouldn't have been a good idea if the shark had been really hungry, but it had worked. If you were alive, what else mattered? Should he tell them? Even Milo was looking at him with respect. Without quite being able to put words to it, Mao felt that being mysterious and a little dangerous was not a bad thing right now, and they would never know that he'd pissed himself on the way back to the canoe, which, as far as sharks were concerned, was nearly as bad as blood in the water, but the shark was unlikely to tell anyone. He looked around, half expecting to see a dolphin waiting for him to throw it a fish, and it would feel right to do so. But there was no dolphin. It was scared of me, he said. Perhaps it was scared by the demon. Wow, said Pilu. Remind me, when we get back, that I owe a fish to Nawi. Then he looked along the little deck to Ataba, who was lying in a heap. How is he? He's been banged about on the coral, but he'll live, said Milo. He gave Mao a questioning look, as if to say, If that's all right with you. He went on, Uh, who's Nawi, a new god? No, better than a god, a good man. Mao felt cold now. It had seemed so warm in the blue bubble. He wanted to shiver, but he didn't dare let them see. He wanted to lie down, but there was no time for that. He needed to get back. He needed to find out. Grandfathers, he said under his breath, tell me what to do. I do not know the chants. I do not know the songs, but just once help me. I need a chart for the world. I need a map. 